Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Charles Stewart-Smith. I'm the chairman of Editorial Intelligence, and on behalf of Editorial Intelligence, thank you all for coming on this um, warm evening. Um, if any of you feel tempted to nod off, don't worry. This will be available as a podcast later on, so you can pick it up later. Um, my duty is just to say a few thank yous this evening, firstly to the RSA and Matthew for hosting this evening, to our partners in this project, The Power of the Commentariat, uh, Weber Shamwick and the City of London Corporation, and of course the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, and in particular John Lloyd from the, from the Reuters Institute. Uh, sadly, John can't be here this evening because he's in Brussels on a story for the FT, but delightfully we have his fellow co-author and chief executive and founder of Editorial Intelligence, Julia uh, Hobsbawm, who is on, now on the panel. Um, and all I need to do now is to hand over to Matthew Taylor, chief executive of the RSA, to chair the event. Thank you. Well, thank you. Good. Well, uh, welcome, everybody, to uh, the RSA. Um, I'm slightly disorientated because we uh, um, have events here at the RSA all the time, and they're free and open to the public, and so there's two or three people who come to every single event. Um, and so it's a bit strange to be looking out they're not here tonight. So um, uh, welcome uh, to the RSA. We're here to discuss uh, this excellent uh, short, uh, fascinating uh, pamphlet, The Power of the Commentary, which I think you've all got on your seat in front of you. I'm not going to say uh, much apart from introducing uh, the speakers and um, uh, inviting you to ask questions. I wrote a blog my, uh, about this uh, subject this morning. My blog is read by four people, including my mother, but she's on holiday, so my readership's down by 25%. But uh, if you're interested in my views of the commentariat, there they are. A bit grumpy, I'm afraid, but, um, uh, but they're there. Um, as I say, we've got an absolutely excellent panel tonight. Um, I won't say a great deal about them as I introduce them because you recognise um, uh, all of them. Uh, we'll hear each for each of them in turn, about five minutes per person. They'll stick very uh, strictly to their time limit and then we'll hand it over to you uh, for questions. Uh, so our first speaker, appropriately enough, uh, is Julia Hobsbawm, who was one of the authors of the pamphlet. And Julia, I think you're going to talk about what's in the pamphlet. I am. Well, it's very nice to be here to talk about the report, which was a twinkle in my eye for quite a while, and we've brought it to fruition. Of course, editorial intelligence believes the commentariat is powerful, and we make quite a nice living out of summarising and digesting and analysing the commentators, so we don't need the proof ourselves. But we wanted to hold up to the light, to some extent, this increasingly visible and prominent sector of the media. And I think that, in a word, the power of the commentariat is cultural, if nothing else. And the reason why I say that is that in culture, sometimes things are very definable and tangible, and sometimes they are very amorphous, and it's very difficult to be precise about the nature of their power. Uh, certainly last week, when I was deciding who to vote for in the mayoral elections, I avidly read and considered and weighed up what Simon said in the Evening Standard and what Polly said in The Guardian. And quite at what point I decided to vote the way I decided to vote... <laughs> no, I'm not here to talk about who I voted for, but the point I'm making is it did influence me. I did seek out their opinions quite specifically at a time of, of shall we say, indecision. And one of the things that I think is uh, evidence of the power of the commentariat is that those of us that are over about 20 know how seismically the media has changed over the last 10, 15, 20 years. It's 25 years since I've first began working in the media. Ten years ago, you could say, the media is 24-7. 
Today, it's an understatement to say that the media is 24 nanosecond. It happens all the time. You make the news. The BBC openly advertises for you to send in your pictures and your stories whenever there's a live news event. So what resonates in our view with the public, with different publics, is the voice of the commentator. Why? Because the commentator has a voice. The commentator has, to use what Danny has described in his column today, what Mick Fealty has talked about, what David Aronovich talks about, is narrative and grand narrative. The commentator gives voice to things that we feel, that we see, that we observe. And it is that juxtaposition of fact and reportage and emotion and uh, unashamed opinion that I think gives it its resonance. Very briefly, we've interviewed a cross-section of people for this report. Some of them in the comment world were very modest and self-effacing and said, I'm not remotely powerful, I don't wish to be powerful, I don't seek power. Now, there's a problem with that as far as I'm concerned. Firstly, if you're Peter Roborn, who is one of the most gifted writers of his generation, his column is bylined on politics and power. So even if he doesn't think he's powerful, his readers do, or his readers are led to believe that they are. But secondly, it's not necessarily the individual moment of a column resonating. It is the aggregation of that opinion. And as one of our interviewees said in the report, when the Mail and the FT and the Guardian all say the same thing and the Sun, you know you've got a problem. And it's very difficult to say how influential the comment media are on, say, the current travails of the government. But I would say the comment media is as influential or as uninfluential as the polling uh, companies are. There are certain times when polls are less reliable than others. In the cultural moment that preceded this one, when it was fashionable to not be a conservative, a lot of people felt ambivalent about saying they were going to vote conservative, so they basically fudged it in the polls. Now it's much more reliable if people say they're going to vote Tory, it generally means they are. So I have not set out, nor has John, to prove a point that the commentariat is powerful. I take it as a given that it is, but in subtle ways, in t intangible ways, as much as the tangible. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Julia. Okay, uh, our next uh, speaker is Simon Jenkins in The Guardian, whose piece this morning I took to be, subtext to be, what, um, what we need from Gordon Brown is more style, less substance. Maybe I <laughs> um, I'm sure you'll be in your five minutes showing both style and substance. Once again, Matthew, you put it much briefer than I could have done. Um, uh, I have to say, I find this gathering almost insufferably narcissistic. Um, I'm not at all sure what we're supposed to be saying to you or to each other, um, which I slightly felt about the report as well. Um, I'm not sure if you ask a large number of people about themselves, you're going to get a very honest answer. Um, uh, Certainly, as long as I've been a journalist, the dichotomy has been um, uh, almost ludicrously constant. Um, are opinion journalists um, far too big for their boots? Um, if so, they should be cut down to size. You should stop reading them, all of you. Um, stop talking about them so much. Um, stop buying their newspapers, and every, everything will be a, a much happier place. And anyway, they're not important at all. They're just wrapping fish. Uh, they don't care. We don't care about them. Um, the, the argument goes round and round in circles. I think it probably has since Cromwell's day when columnists started. Uh, the only two points uh, I would like to make, um, ha having read the excellent report, um, is I think there is a sort of difference 
between two sorts of columnists, um, and I think they both are equally valid and both have their place in newspapers. One is the columnist who, in a sense, is a, um, a courtier of faction. Uh, they're uh, recognizable, they, uh, the reader knows where they're coming from, um, and when they change course, uh, it's taken as um, assumed that the conversation uh, within which they are operating is also changing course. And that sort of columnist is very influential within that particular factional context. Um, and I think that's uh, as old as time. Um, is valid and is very similar to the influence that whole newspapers used to have when they were run by proprietors. Uh, I think there's a different sort of columnist who, um, who is uh, often more personal, um, less representative of the opinions of a group, and, um, and uh, is often read just because the particular voice that that columnist has is liked by a particular group of readers. Um, and I think there is a sort of distinction between those two groups. The only other point I'd make um, insofar as I'm trying to be substantive, um, is that I think that the, the power of the named journalist, and I just go back to the days when there were very, very few named columns in newspapers, and I can't quite remember Cassandra, who I see is cited in this, but um, I'm sure there are people in the room who can, um, but there really weren't very many people who were allowed space in a newspaper uh, with their name on it, let alone that, that ghastly innovation, their picture uh, to their name on it. Um, which I have to admit I've fought all my life but f failed. Um, I, I, I think that the, uh, the extent to which this particular phenomenon has become more prominent, which it certainly has, is itself a function of a failure elsewhere in the political system. Um, it, it, we all want to talk about politics. Uh, the political community is engaged in a constant debate. If that debate diminishes in one corner of the field, it is going to increase in the other. Uh, politics abhors a vacuum. And I think there's no doubt at all, um, and I, this has become a bit of a cliche, but I think it's true, that insofar as you get less vigorous debate uh, within the context of party politics, within the context of parliament, also within other um, areas of the political spectrum, such as the universities, um, even to a certain extent the think tanks, um, the, uh, the provincial Britain, in that general sense of provincial Britain, uh, the provincial press, Insofar as that's the case, you will find people spending more time reading columnists. Uh, and that is, that is um, a, a matter of default rather than a matter of, of, of specific activity on the part of newspapers promoting their columnists. So I do think that um, if you, uh, and I don't think there are many people in this room, if you are among those people who in some sense deplore uh, the increased influence of a particular group of journalists, qua columnists, I don't think it's our fault. I mean, you might think I would say that, wouldn't I? Uh, I think that we are merely a function of uh, deficiencies elsewhere in the political system. Thank you very much. Okay, great. And our uh, next speaker is Suzanne Moore from The Mail on Sunday, who I think is the only economist up here who hasn't most re recently written about Gordon Brown. Um, so over to you, Suzanne. Um, when I was at The Guardian women rarely appeared on the comment pages. I know that's changed, but comment leader writing is still quite a male preserve. And um, in the hierarchy of newspaper identity, it's very important. But in the hierarchy of what sells newspapers, I'd argue not so important. What sells a newspaper, and you might not want to know it, but it sports a wine offer or a CD on the front of it. Um, there are, I often think that writing a column is quite, um, when you ask, people ask you what you do and you say, I write a column, and they say, how big is it? 
and how often does it appear? So it's quite a sort of phallic thing to be doing. So the proliferation of columns, I, and, I, and I, of course I can say mine is quite big, um, but the proliferation of columns means that there's many different kinds of columns, as Simon said, doing different things. I mean, some people are your friends, and they're kind of writing you letters because nobody writes letters anymore. And some are telling you what to think. If only you had the time to sit down and think it. And those, those are probably the best kind of columnists. I, I think there's a big difference between a column in a Sunday paper and a daily paper. And there's a big difference between polemic and entertainment. I mean, there's no point writing something if someone isn't going to read it till to the end. Um, I'm employed by the Mail explicitly not to follow their editorial line, which assumes that I have a sustainable ideological position. That's not how they speak, but that's what it means. Um, and the people that, you know, assume that the assumptions that people make about male readers, guardian readers, and so on, are often, in my experience, completely wrong. Um, of course, not everybody gets it. When I was first at the Mail, um, one bloke, I said, I was arguing with somebody in conference, and one of the editors shouted at me, exactly what kind of conservative are you, Suzanne? Um, so they don't all get it, but I'm obviously not there to represent their line. Um, I went from the independent to the male, obviously for money, but also because of the kind of people that I could speak to. At that point, I wanted to speak to the people who had voted, um, always voted Tory, who would vote Labour and will again vote Tory. From my letters, it's no surprise to me that Cameron is on the rise. These readers are socially liberal. They are way to the left of the editorial line of the male. And, uh, you know, we, I think these are important people to speak to. Another thing you won't believe is that it's harder to write a tabloid-style column than a 1,500-broadsheet you know, column, but I went from doing two 1,500-word pieces a, a week to a tabloid-style column. In a tabloid, you punch it out. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You're going to make two or three points, and you're going to make them strongly. And often, because you have to do little bits, you get more response to the little bits that you just did as a little joke than you do to the thing that you really thought about it, and that's the nature of it. Last week, for instance, I did a piece on 40 years of safe and legal abortion for women in this country to celebrate the 1967 Act. And for me, it was more important to get that in the mail than to get it into the Guardian or the Independent. So it's always a question of context. And when you talk about influence, it's like, who are you trying to influence? And what is your definition of power? And what is your definition of politics? For me, um, politics is often more largely cultural politics. Um, to write a piece on lap dancing or something isn't the same as advising Gordon Brown not to smile inappropriately, but it's still, it's still political in a wider sense. The exchange between Westminster and, and journalism and all that stuff, sometimes it's, it is a real genuine exchange, but of course we all know that it is sometimes just a kind of circular argument that no one is really interested in. So I think column writing should sort of step out of that. And sometimes, as well, we have to admit, you know, I, we have to admit what we can't do. And, you know, when I look at Steve Bell sometimes, I know that he can say more in one little image than some of us could sort of spend a lifetime saying. Um, when the... I agree with Simon. I think when the ideological divides between the parties become smaller, then it is important that columnists say their piece. I mean, obviously, Iraq is an example. And one of the things about the report that, um, reading through the report, that is apparent is that we all pretend that we all are all kind of um, 
quite modest and we don't have any influence and we don't really want to do anything. The truth is, nobody would write anything unless they had an ego. Nobody would write anything unless they thought they could change something. And surely that is always your ambition, to shift the discourse a little bit, to nudge it, to provoke. I mean, if you don't want to do that, then, you know, blog. Um, <laughs> that's all I can say. I think that's probably as much as I should say for now. <laughs> Uh, well, Suzanne, thank you for that. I loved your suggestion that there was something phallic about columns. I can imagine a bumper sticker. Columnists do it every week. Um, and, of course, bloggers would respond to bloggers do it every day, um, even if nobody reads them. Uh, okay, our next speaker, who has written himself forthrightly in the last uh, day or so, uh, is Charles Clark. Charles. Well, Matthew, firstly, can I congratulate you on uh, organising this whole thing? I think it's very good indeed, and it's important that people are looking at this properly. I think there are many different types of power involved in the commentariat. And I want to start from the position that I think argument matters in politics. And I think many people don't think argument matters in politics, but I think argument does matter. And I think the commentariat, the columnists who are here and elsewhere, are the prism through which many of those arguments take place and through which many ideas, views, uh, propositions are tested uh, more or less rigorously. There is no other part of the media which tests them. Uh, I agree with uh, a criticism that Simon made a moment ago. There are many parts of politics which don't test propositions as rigorously as need to be uh, tested. And I think the commentariat uh, from a wide range of different opinions do do that. I've experienced that in the various policy areas I've had to deal with. So if you look at the controversial areas, areas like student finance, ID cards, counterterrorism, these types of issues, a wide range of commentators with different views testing uh, the uh, accuracy, the uh, seriousness, the uh, feasibility of the propositions that we had. And I certainly thought when I was a minister that it was an important part of what I was doing to try and engage in the argument which the commentators were making on that question. I think the commentators are more important than many of the other examples. I agree with Suzanne's implicit remark about the blogs. I don't think the blogs are really engaging with the argument very much at all. In the list that you provided, Julia, in the document, I don't actually think the leader columns actually engage very much. I don't think the leader columns are very significant in this. But I think the commentators are. I don't think the universities are very significant, Simon, in relation to what's happening. I think the reason why think tanks were set up and why they exist is because of the incapacity of the universities to engage in many of the contemporary debates and test what's going on. They may give you an answer as to what's going to happen in five years' time if you're lucky, but uh, they're not really engaged in what's happening now. So there are not many places where it really happens, but the commentators, the commentariat in this language, uh, do. Now, it's very important that happens now with the state of politics at the moment. It's very important that the arguments about how would the Conservatives do, how will Labour take its way forward, uh, and so on, are really explored by the commentators from all their different positions. I think it's very important indeed. And here we come to the key, which I hope that uh, this project will continue to explore. What is the quality of the commentariat? There are some very positive people, some very positive aspects uh, who are very rigorous in argument. Uh, some of the commentators are the most rigorous people you would ever come across in terms of going through an argument, and that's <coughs> extremely important. Uh, there are people who are fearless in exploring the inconsistencies, the doubts, the problems that exist in certain positions, and we need more of that as well. But there are also some negatives. Uh, there are negatives of the prejudice, anti-thought, courtier of faction point. 
uh, where people are so predictable that uh, you simply can't take them seriously in any way. <coughs> There's also a herd instinct, which is very serious, which says the agenda is X, and we're on this agenda, and anybody who's off this agenda is missing the whole point of the discussion. And I think that is a serious, uh, a serious point. So you need iconoclasts to be uh, columnists as well, and commentators as well. So conclusion, Matthew. I believe that argument is central to politics, remains central to politics. If you start getting off the argument base, then you start losing in politics, and that the commentariat has an absolutely central role to play in seeing how the various arguments evolve and are carried through. But I also think that means that the commentators and the media generally in whom the commentators write have to look at the quality of their commentators in a wide variety of different ways. And that is much more important than, for example, the leaders, for example, the blogs. And I think that's where you can contribute more. Thank you for that, Charles. Um, now, uh, our final uh, speaker, because Hilary Armstrong hasn't uh, joined us, um, uh, gave some advice to Gordon Brown um, just recently. Uh, he suggested that uh, Gordon needed to have a strong narrative and to advance big themes. So I'm sure, uh, Daniel, that uh, you will be making a contribution which in five minutes has a strong narrative and advances big themes. Well, first of all, let me start not as a columnist but as a former political practitioner. That there can't be any question that, that Julia and John started in the correct place. As a political practitioner, there's no doubt whatsoever that what commentators have written um, is, and I won't use the phrase commentariat in the same way that I refuse to use the word blogosphere. Um, <coughs> the, uh, there's no doubt whatsoever that, that, that what commentators write does influence politicians both through arguments and in ways that um, I'll establish later. Um, on on uh, Afghanistan, um, Paddy Ashdown would uh, now be holding senior office uh, were it not for the fact that, that, that uh, President Karzai was furious at a leader in the Times and was sure the British government had arranged it. And um, he now says that that's the reason why he vetoed Ashdown's appointment. So there are concrete examples um, where what leader writers and commentators um, say have influenced um, real decisions. And I saw it working for William Hague, where both the thrust of um, newspaper writing and individual columns had a real influence. And I think actually, incidentally, not a good influence. I think that we were, uh, in William Hague's office, I think too influenced by people who actually uh, didn't really know what they were talking about and had no understanding of what the electorate thought. Uh, and we should have applied our own judgment rather than following the judgment of others. But that, that was an influence uh, on the William Hague's office, I, I think, from the inside is indisputable. So the real question is how do we model the influence that uh, commentators have? How, how can we see the way that they influence decisions? The best way to make a political decision would be with a vast number of people contributing each independently from the other uh, a judgment, the wisdom of crowds effectively. But that isn't actually how we make the decision. It's really the opposite. We, we, we arrange very small numbers of people who are all reliant on each other's opinion. That's how British politics is done. In, in contradistinction to everything we know about how to make a good decision. And commentators' role, as well as contributing, as Charles suggested, to the individual arguments, is really to shift us from one unstable equilibrium to another, to push the herd uh, from going in one direction to another. You will all remember that in the uh, summer, everyone went um, brown-tastic, to use Matthew's uh, phrase, and rubbish became the new brilliant, and we were all incredibly impressed that Gordon Brown didn't know which way to turn out of his car because we thought this was a new age of unspun politics. Um, this 
preposterous um, viewpoint uh, actually uh, was written by everybody for months until suddenly it wasn't anymore. Uh, and everybody then realized that rubbish was actually the new rubbish and began to write that instead. Um, and I think the, com you know, the, the, the commentators did play a role in shifting from that one consensus to another. What limits the influence, of course, is that commentators are a herd too, that they follow each other uh, as well as um, leading. And it's very difficult. There are some um, uh, leading indicator columnists who some of the time shift opinion. But I would counsel against what's been said a couple of times about blogs. I think that if you were looking for an explanation for why we've taken what I have often not regarded as a very tasteful um, campaign about um, members of parliament and their privileges and expenses, that Guido Force has been a huge influence on commentators and on the consensus in the press. Uh, if you look at the debate inside the Conservative Party, Tim Montgomery is sitting here, Conservative Home has been a massive influence on, uh, on, on it. I haven't always agreed, as Tim knows, with the judgments that they've made, but the idea that it hasn't, it hasn't been equally important or even sometimes more important than what commentators have to say, I think ignores the reality. And we're going to see more of that, and it is going to change who actually has power as we diffuse the number of people who can comment and whose comment is taken um, seriously. Another thing that uh, limits the power of commentators is that we're often reflecting truth uh, and we're analysts and bad persuaders. If you were see, I mean, one of the things that I note, uh, for example, is uh, lots and lots of commentary about obesity. I'm absolutely convinced that the uh, effect of this is to increase obesity. As we pass from one person to another, the idea that everybody else is obese. Um, this is bound, any social psychologist would tell you, to inform people that obesity was actually uh, the norm, much more normal than it actually is, and to encourage people to eat more. Um, if, if commentators were um, real persuaders, they would be interested in the rules of persuasion and avoid such mistakes. But actually, that isn't in our interest, because what we really are are analysts and polemicists. We're not trying always uh, to change things, and if we do, we would act um, in, in uh, different ways. So while it is unquestionable that what commentators say influence, I would, uh, influences people, I would say, first of all, that... Not all commentators all of the time are being all that influential because often they're being influenced by another commentator. Um, and that this herd, that it's the person who tips you from one uh, position to another and it's very difficult to judge who that might be and it's different people all the time. And secondly, that the restricted group of people that we now regard as commentators, I think, uh, will in time uh, become a much bigger group uh, as we begin to, uh, as the internet begins to establish other names and faces. I hope that one of the consequence of that will be a movement to a greater sample size and more independence between individuals, but there's sometimes a disturbing uh, trend towards herd uh, instincts on the net as well. Okay, um, as I'm going to suffer from the enormous frustration not being able to speak for the next half an hour, apart from pointing at people, I'm going to, in 45 seconds, tell you what I think. Um, uh, and it's simply one comment, which is that my, I, generally speaking, belong to the school that thinks the biggest problem of politics is not that politicians are trying to screw the people, but that politicians are frightened of people. Uh, and they're frightened of people who, uh, as a whole, increasingly present impossible demands to politicians who want to have their cake and eat it too, and then throw it up and eat it again. And in that context, what worries me about the commentariat overall, and this is a generalization, is that we, ra we would rather read things that make, make us feel self-righteous than make us read, read things that make us feel self-critical. 
And so generally speaking, the commentariat overall propounds a view which is what is going on in the world is that venal politicians are screwing you rather than that we as citizens face a set of very difficult choices. And that feels to me overall to be a problem. Uh, because actually, I don't think the problem that we face as our politicians it is that we as a society aren't willing to face up to some of the very difficult choices that we face in a whole number of different areas. That's enough from me. Uh, like, a kind of, um, like, a, like a kind of classic new Labour event, I've been told who the first two, two questioners are going to be. It's been like back in sort of, you know, it's like being back in a policy forum, for example. Um, now, our first speaker is obviously, a first questioner is the, uh, this pamphlet confirms, is the Alex Ferguson. Uh, of economists. Uh, not only is she a red, not only is she always rated the best by her peers, not only is she utterly admired by her, uh, by her followers, but she's given grudging support even by those who detest everything she stands for. Polly Tomey. Well, thank you very much. But I have to say that I am very puzzled by this great honour because on whom do I have this influence? Um, plainly not on the rest of the commentariat who mostly don't agree with what I say. Plainly not on the voters who've just crashed the party I mostly support out of the sky. Plainly not on Gordon Brown, who, if he'd taken my advice, might not have just crashed out of the sky. Uh, and so I find it puzzling. Um, and I would be interested, I don't suppose you'd ever get anybody to tell enough truth, to have some objective measure of influence. And I think that might be very difficult, as opposed to who do we read or who do we think might have influence. But I, to be honest, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, it's not false modesty. I think I'd be quite hard put to look at the way politics are swaying at the moment and say I must be the most influential. I must be more influential than the Daily Mail, um, the Sun. I find, that, I find this difficult. Nevertheless, I'm, I'm extremely pleased to be thought so. David Cameron wants people who like what you write to think that he's not a threat and that in, in that sense one of the things that you've managed to do is to drag the political centre ground to, know, to where you stand. Now, you may not agree that David Cameron does stand for what you stand for, but he clearly wants people to feel that they can both agree with you and agree with him. Well, I think the David Cameron incident was just part of David Cameron, Cameron's butterfly tactics. He alights briefly on an iceberg or a husky or me and has a little <laughs> bit of that and says uh, for one day, oh, look, I'm a bit polytoyby today. And he leaves no footprint. He leaves no policy and fl floats away. And people say, oh, we must be quite good on poverty because she cares about poverty, for instance. So I don't think that quite counts as influence. It might be being used a bit, perhaps, in a way, without my uh, advice, without my consent. Um, I think perhaps if any of us are ever likely to get above ourselves, well, certainly on The Guardian, we only have to look at comment is free, and it gives us you know, an enormous pummeling every day, um, absolute vituperation. It's rather like those emperors who hire people to insult you to make sure that you, uh, that you don't um, get above yourself. But I think the important thing about being a political columnist is to like politics, to trust politics, to believe that on the whole, politicians of all parties, apart from a few bad hats, really relatively few, uh, do this pretty dreadful job because they really want to get something done as they see it, make the world better. And I think if you don't start from that supposition, you're really sunk. If you think they're all cads, rotters, and bounders, if you think they're all in it for themselves, or you're saying, you know, out for the expenses, good heavens. Um, I think you're done for. I think you have to have that basic admiration. And I think perhaps what distresses me most about the way comment goes, and certainly about the way 
that comment on the blog goes, of the Guido Fawkes, if he's the leader of that crew, it is very much to denigrate, to despise, to think that they are uh, all extremely bad people who we should be wary of. Uh, and, you know, where does democracy go if we have no respect or honor for the people that we, that we elect? Um, who have, you know, four, 40 years of life. You might, if you're jolly lucky, get a, few, a couple of years in the cabinet, uh, an awful lot of years on the back benches, perhaps the best years of your life. Um, as a prospect, as a career for a bright young person, it's a pretty poor outlook. So I think we should be more generous to them. Sorry, I hadn't really asked you a question. I suppose the question I would ask is, you know, is, you know, is, is it actually getting worse? Is the commentariat getting more abusive about politics, bringing it into worse contempt, and being less, perhaps, analytical than it used to be? Or was it always thus? What I'm going to do, because we have such a, uh, a fine panel that I completely trust to show the right judgment, is I'm going to just let you panel leap in when you feel that you want to make a comment or to answer a question. I'm going to just, uh, Danny, can you just respond to that particular point that Bonnie makes about whether or not the commentary are getting worse in terms of their kind of critique of the political establishment? Do you think that's cyclical? I mean, you rather implied a kind of, uh, that th th these things going kind of sideways. Well, I certainly believe that we forgot with members of parliament that we're, we're their employers. Um, uh, and we have been bad employers. Uh, we're rude and um, we uh, lack perspective. Um, and I think that that has been true of some commentators and some newspapers and has been a thrust of, of some articles. And I think a lack of respect of politicians has been part of it. And I, d I don't welcome it. I think sometimes we're inclined to gloss over. I, I learned one of the things that I learned when I started working at The Times was that in politics, you have to think of a few ideas and they have to actually work, and you have to stick with them, and you might still be asked about them 15 years later. In journalism, you have to think of a vast number of ideas, but you don't have to stick with them. Uh, and um, they both present difficulties, uh, in co uh, but um, th there's not enough respect, I think, sometimes for commentators of how difficult it is to get clear, big, consistent policies that actually work, see them through and produce a coalition behind them. And so I think... Polly's got a point in that respect. Running a think tank is about halfway between, I'd say. Right. I'm afraid I can't give every question of the same eulogistic introduction that I gave to Polly, uh, Tony. So uh, uh, it, it could all future questioners, could you identify yourself before you ask a question about your point? That's very kind of you. Uh, Tony Halmos from the City of London Corporation. Three quick points. Firstly, we're delighted to have helped support both the publication and tonight's event. As uh, Charles Clark said earlier, uh, crucial debate to have whatever one's views on the on the particular points that have been raised. Uh, secondly, um, what is the view of the panel on, the, on a rather obvious sort of um, recent topical point, namely, was it the standard what won it? Uh, they themselves, in effect, if you look at the words uh, across the strap on the top of the standard on Friday in the late edition, said so, like the Sun did back in 92. The words weren't the same, but the interpretation was the same. Something like standard investigation helps Boris win, but it was the same point. So the question there, and particularly in the context of tonight's event and the publication, the commentary in the standard, Simon, Andrew Gilligan, etc., um, as against obviously the the, uh, the balance, as against the, the the news investigations and so on. Well, that is such an interesting point. Let's do that one right. first, and I'll Simon. I mean, I I, I think you've got to be very careful with this one. Um, in the first place, there were plenty of ferocity on both sides of that London debate, not least in The Guardian. 
Um, uh, so I honestly don't think the Standard won it anymore. The Guardian lost it. Um, the, the the other thing I really do feel, and it gets back to something Polly said, which I mean I, I, I totally agree that your tone of voice as a commentator has got to show a certain decent respect for people who are doing a very difficult job. In this case, politicians. I hope we don't take that too far. I mean. I haven't got too much respect for politicians. If I start having too much respect for politicians, no one's going to read me. Uh, and anyway, our job is not there to show respect for politicians. I do show respect for politics. And I think that was really your point. Um, but in the case of, of, of this great issue, do newspapers swing elections? I just don't believe it. Uh, I think pe people, people swing elections. Um, electors swing elections. If it were the case, and I remember there was one moment in the 1970s when there was a danger, when the Daily Mirror was up for sale, and there was a danger that the Daily Mirror would be bought by a right-wing proprietor, when every single newspaper in Britain would have been Tory. I would have considered that a legitimate reason for government intervention. But short of that, the extraordinary phenomenon in Britain is the plurality of the press. One of the reasons why um, columnists are so much more... Uh, quotes potent in this country compared to America, where the blogs are potent. There just aren't very many newspapers in America. I think you've got to consider the, 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 kind of the, 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 the political economics of the media as, as a part of this general question. But I really, I really don't think, um, I mean, it's all fair in love and war how newspapers are, are biased before elections, but as long as it's the case that there are lots of newspapers, which most people read knowing the predisposition of the newspaper proprietor or editor, um, as long as that's the case, I think democracy is pretty safe with the press we've got. Do you want to comment on this, Charles? And also, you might want to refer more broadly to the well, power I, of local, I mean, local newspapers who, who have a, a, a greater kind of monopoly in relation to, and which arguably the standard is not a complete monopoly, but has a... Unfortunately, I agree with Simon. Um, I don't think it was the standard what won it in this occasion, nor do I think it was the Sun what won it in 1992, an election which I know very, very well. Uh, the Sun behaved disgracefully. I actually think the standard behaved pretty bad in relation to this election myself. Uh, however, I don't think they were the cause. I think they're illustrations of what I was trying to say earlier on, which is they illuminate the argument or lack of argument. If you go back to 1992, I think there were certain things that Labour didn't succeed in doing it to win the 1992 election, which were exposed by that election campaign and gave the Sun an ability to operate in the way it did. I think there were certain things Ken didn't do in relation to this election, Ken Livingston didn't do in relation to this London election, which made it easier for the standard to make the arguments that it did. And it was an illustration of the situation. I think it is a serious cop-out for political parties or politicians to say that the media determine the outcomes. Uh, I think there are many very unpleasant aspects of the media uh, that I hate, actually. Uh, and normally, I, under my uh, shy and retiring disposition, I try and keep that relatively uh, quiet. Uh, but uh, I don't think it's uh, responsible for what happens in elections. In terms of the discrediting of politicians, I'm much less worried about the rubbishing of politicians by columnists by the commentariat than I am by other aspects of journalism vis-a-vis -vis politicians, like doorsteps. I was talking to somebody last night who'd had up to 50 crew outside their front door for two weeks earlier this year in a way which is absolutely and completely unacceptable and does absolutely nothing for news values. Uh, I think there are many aspects of the news sections of newspapers which are much more difficult for politicians to deal with than the comment <coughs> sections of newspapers. In fact, I'd argue that a certain degree of robust language about politicians uh, is uh, needed. My regret, and it's very serious, is politicians don't have the capacity to do the same back to the journalists. And I could give quite a number of to the, col to the columnists. There's a number of occasions, I've, as one of them is referred to in the, in the pamphlet, where I've thought that columnists have been seriously offside 
but I've had absolutely no means of being able to say that, and I've had the experience myself of lies being told about me and the editor of major national broadsheets refusing to publish a letter back uh, because they don't think that my letter is the correct description of the integrity of their journalist. Well, actually, my letter was not designed to be about the integrity of their journalist. It was designed to be about the lies told by that journalist. Uh, and I think the inability of politicians to come back is a weakness in the media which it should examine. But nevertheless, I fundamentally agree with Simon that a very robust set of exchanges which exposes politicians and what they say is a fundamental part of democracy and the most distasteful aspects of what affects politicians are not done by the commentariat. The other thing, I, th I agreed very much with what Polly said, I thought it was very interesting, but I think her concept of an objective measure of influence is quite entertaining to think how one might uh, do it. Um, and I think that, in a sense, it's worth remembering you know, the male and the sun at different areas have been very effective in going down a particular line and changing the climate. Uh, columnists like Richard Littlejohn, not a man I admire uh, hardly at all, uh, uh, have been very effective in changing the climate in certain ways. Um, and it is a, the case that it's very difficult to contest them. And I think that's the thing which I'd say in all of this when we talk about influence. It's, uh, the authority of a Simon Jenkins, and I don't mean it personally, or a Polly Toynbee, and again, I don't mean it personally, or Richard Littlejohn, it's difficult for anybody to get back, and the um, correspondence columns of the, those newspapers don't really take anything serious about in, in getting back, generally speaking. Well, I kind of don't think the standard won the election. I think Ken lost the election, and I think it's very important to uphold the tradition, however uncomfortable of investigative reporting and I think I believe that Andrew Gilligan did an effective uh, devastatingly effective piece of, of investigative reporting and threw up uncomfortable, unpalatable, difficult, dangerous truths that may have been minor in the grand context but which resonated with the public and one of the things that I think columnists do so very well is they both reflect opinion and they refract and shape opinion and you know, in some senses, one turns to a columnist to have a wonderful turn of phrase, and all of the columnists that have great traction and great salaries in this country have a wonderful turn of phrase. But they both tell you what you already know and what you feel and thought and say it better than you, and they also sometimes give you information. Polly was cited in many cases in the interviews in our report for the depth of her research. Columnists are journalists. And even Richard Littlejohn, who I actually do admire hugely for his polemic and his ability to connect and say uncomfortable truths, uh, we had an unnamed ministerial aide confirm to us that it was in a way much the easiest option to listen to the Westminster commentators and those inside the village and the Peter Riddells and people who are completely spot on than it was to hear what Richard Littlejohn was saying the people feel about the Gurkhas and what the people feel about police pay. So that's exactly why I think the media is powerful is because it's saying things people don't want to hear as much as what they do want to hear. And I think it told in the standards case some extremely uncomfortable truths about Ken and I think it mattered in the outcome. Okay, who's next? Ben Atfield from Edward uh, Natfield. Uh, Simon Jenkins, um, you, uh, you said that you thought the rise or the strength of the commentariat was in large part due to the consequence of the poor or the weakness of the political debate had out by the political classes uh, and uh, that puts the commentariat in a very strong position. 
my question for the, the panel really is, uh, we, uh, um, I mean, I'm trying to think of the whole quote, that glorious summer um, uh, last year, how it was to be young, when Gordon Brown was coming to power and the terrible Tony Blair was going, and everybody was remembering of Gordon's ideological compass and how it would direct him and reinvigorate politics. What is it that the commentariat has to direct their critique and their understanding and their insight into our society? Because I found really shocking, and the only person I can think of, I'm sure people will put me wrong, was Matthew Paris, who relentlessly ploughed away that Gordon Brown will be uh, called uh, 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 a bluff very quickly, and everybody lampooned him. And here we are, six, 12 months on, and everybody, the consensus of the commentary has swung the other way. Nobody wants to really remember or reread the articles. And all of a sudden, we're talking about how wonderful it would be to have Tony Blair back, almost. So my question is, what's the ideological substance or the compass that helps the commentary or assures us that the commentary has some insight or some uncritical approach that we should appreciate? You could say the same thing for Clinton. I mean, Clinton was an absolute guaranteed shoe-in and um, uh, just hasn't um, been reflected by uh, 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 the journalism. Okay, I don't think anyone's actually said that Tony Blair should come back. I look for it every day and I haven't quite yet seen it. Um, I mean, I say it every morning, of course, as I get up. But uh, now, behind you, yep. Yes, uh, Julian Samways. Um, when politicians are weak, does the commentariat get stronger, which is the Westminster Village argument that essentially you're talking to each other? And I'm glad the panel tonight, by the way, have held back from what could have been an ego fest. Um, the second point is, on the commentariat, who are they? I mean, as Suzanne touched on the point, cartoonists, are they commentariat? Talk show hosts, where are the sun and the mirror tonight? So it could be a much broader audience, than, or much broader panel, perhaps, than we've got tonight. And lastly, one of the good things, and a plug about editorial intelligence, is it's very easy to uh, look at what you're all writing very quickly in a two-minute summary. And a few weeks ago, none of you had any consensus about the future of Gordon Brown. Then after Thursday, you've all got a consensus about the future of Gordon Brown, but you're all giving completely conflicting advice about what he should do with his predicament. So how do we tell who's influential? That's what I'll up to you, isn't it? And then over here. Uh, I'm Nico MacDonald. I'm chair of the BBC's uh, Media Futures Conference. Um, I think uh, Charles and Danny hit on two key points. One is the idea of the quality of debate uh, and how we... Uh, increase that in the case of Charles and Danny's comment about the wisdom and how we best make decisions in society and I'm interested um, particularly this is directed I think to uh, to Danny given his role in uh, in the Times uh, blogosphere so to speak and perhaps to Julia what what is the one thing that we might do that would enable us to better create a space for debate and discussion online uh, assuming that we're not going to end up with a, a stronger political class, which it was indicated would actually reduce the need for the commentariat. And my feeling is that at the moment we don't have a lot of good models. I think the editorial intelligence summaries, without being too creepy to Julia, uh, are actually a very good start. Comment is free. I'm interested that Polly does read the comments there, and credit to her for that. We don't actually have very strong models taking advantage of new, new technologies and new designs that would allow us to have a richer, more involved, uh, and more thoughtful debate both on and offline. What, what's the one thing that we could do to improve that? I'm going to ask the panel to be very brief in order that I can take one more round of questions before the evening comes to a close. So um, I'll kind of do it in reverse order, Dave. 
Um, the first point was about weakness of debate. I think it's unquestionably the case that one of the things that gives the commentators uh, more influence they might otherwise have had is the very restricted way we have of debating politics in this country. Basically, everybody in the Conservative Party has to agree with everybody else. If they don't agree with them, it's a gaffe or a disaster. If that same is true of the Labour Party, making it impossible for anybody to say anything interesting at all uh, because they know that at any point... They've got to, everybody else in the party has got to be accountable for what they say. It's not surprising then that politics is atrophying and it's impossible uh, for us, for, the, for politics to continue in the same way uh, in, the, in the internet era, in my view, because there's going to be such a vast number of ways of communicating with the electorate and the electorate communicating back that politicians who are creating these incredibly tight messages just designed for the broadcast media through central offices are going to just look um, increasingly manufactured and out of date and the political debate will, will pass them by. So I do think that weakness of the political debate is one of the things that accounts for, um, for um, the freedom of commentators and I personally find it much more liberating to be a columnist uh, than I did in politics because I don't have to agree with anybody else. If I want to, I can say exactly uh, what I want to say. Um, I can even disagree with myself without um, somebody taking, you know, if I change my mind, without somebody taking it up. Um, the question of how you get something useful out of the comment threads on, the, uh, on, these, on blogs, it's is a hard one, partly because Jonathan Friedland commented on what anonymity does, and I think the result of it, anonymity, uh, does result sometimes in an incredibly uh, unconstructive, insulting debate, which is quite unconstructive. So one small thing is that I like, uh, I like to encourage people to... Um, to uh, give their real names, but that's completely against netiquette. And if you did that, your your comment threads would collapse. So you you know you have to be realistic about it. Um, I think that I, I was very very interested in something that was used on local election night, um, which was the and has now been used by a few bloggers, which I've now got the name wrong, but it's something like Cast It Live. What's it? What's the Cover It Live, um, which has given. Uh, a lot of uh, freedom for people to comment on broadcast events as they're happening. The problem is that some of it is unprintable um, and because it's not moderated. So that's, you know, from a Times perspective, it's something, one of the things that I've got to think about. It may be easier for, for uh, a site like Guido Falls uh, to use. But I think it was quite powerful. So uh, lots of different ways of collecting that. Suzanne? Um, I'll just say three quick things. Um, I think because everybody in this room is obviously interested in politics, they underestimate, as I said already, that uh, politics is not what sells newspapers. And, uh, you know, we can, we can all get on our high horses about this, but if you talk to readers about why they buy a particular newspaper, it's often not because they they think of themselves in a certain way. They, they do think of themselves in a certain way, but they're not always identified politically. That's why I, the, the inverse of that is the standard did not win it for Ken. You know, the standard, people buy the standard for all sorts of other reasons. Um, the other thing is that um, this idea about the internet and these people coming up and everybody will read everything. Well, surely one of the reasons that there's so many columnists is because we are saturated with information and we just look to certain people to get us through. Um, most people here will read several newspapers a day, but most people don't. And how are people, even if we get all these fantastic bloggers blogging and blogging, how are we going to read them all? I mean, just how are we going to do it? I just don't get this argument. You only have so many hours in a day. You might have three columnists, you might read two newspapers, and now you're going to have 
sort of 27 blogs that you have to read. I just think it's a fantasy. I just pointed out one fact that Clay Shirky wrote about recently, which is um, about the fact that people won't want to kind of do all this stuff, where he pointed out that the entire effort put into uh, creating Wikipedia is equivalent in time to the amount of time the American population spends watching TV commercials in a single weekend. Um, anyway, i just share that with you. Uh, Charles. Well, I appreciate that piece of information. It just proves uh, how we learn at events like this. I've got two points. Firstly, the point that Simon, Dan, Danny and others have made about the commentary at flourishing in the absence of political debate and space for political debate is completely right. It's like the anger I feel when people say young people aren't interested in politics. Completely untrue. What it is is the political institutions, including parliament, political parties, local government, etc., have not found a way uh, that relates to it. And that is a massive, massive, massive challenge. And uh, so I agree with the final question that we have to create space for discussion online, except that I think there are many different spaces. Uh, Ian Allen Milburn tried in a way with the, the 2020 vision that got killed off for a variety of reasons that didn't succeed. But actually, that is what we have to work on. Though I do think this business about names is important. I don't listen to anything or read anything that people don't have their real name on. I think it's almost disgraceful to put forward a point of view without having a name attached to it. And it's like all the sources uh, behind political journalists which are, uh, should all be named, in my opinion. I think it's a ridiculous state of affairs in which we live. Uh, the second point is about Gordon. I'm, I'm in the uh, difficult position of being one of the few Labour MPs who didn't nominate Gordon to be uh, leader of the Labour Party. Uh, my frustration is that everything for a long time now has been through a Blair Brown prism or through a Brown anti-Brown prism, uh, and it's almost impossible, and I say this with feeling, to say anything about any subject related to politics without most of the commentariat and most of the news media describing it as another uh, foray into Brown-Blair or Brown-Anti-Brown uh, or whatever. Now, of course, some of those things are forays into that space, but actually it means just about nothing else can be said or done in any way, and that is a massive inhibition on the, what people are rightly saying, the need to have a proper political space in which there can be proper debate. Now, that, how can that be changed, both by the conduct of politicians changing and also by the conduct of the media changing? But the fact is, uh, most of the media, including most of the commentariat, interprets just about anything that a number of people say, including myself often, as simply yet another venture into this type of discussion. Julia? Well, just briefly, I'm a bit shocked at how um, dismissive some of the panel are about the blogs. I think the blogs are fantastically important, particularly in relation to politics. In fact, the only sphere of influence that the blogs unarguably have is in relation to politics. I read six or seven politics blogs a day, whether it's Guido Fawkes or Ian Dale or Conservative Home or whatever, and what's very interesting is that the Labour and the Left blogs don't really exist as a force, as a voice. And the reason why they're significant is partly because they are able to say things that are slightly more difficult and dangerous and they break news and provide comment, but also because of aggregation, because Comment Central and um, real clear politics in America and comment is free and so on and so forth. They link and link and link and link so that a piece by Polly, which may be fantastically widely read anyway on The Guardian, uh, is, is, is ricochets around the world. And that's what opinion does, it ricochets. And I think it does so um, with increasing significance through the blogosphere. My one observation, however, is that the blogs are pretty masculine, pretty aggressive, pretty monotone. You know, I'm not a kind of 
you know, let's raise the feminist flag every 30 seconds, but I do think it's pretty obvious that there is no women's voice, there is no balance, there's no sense of, you know, perspective and feeling. It's all pretty brutal and vulgar, actually, on, on the blogosphere. And that, if we're going to extend it so that people begin to take opinion online and regard it in print and online as indivisible, it has to cut the mustard. And whether that's getting rid of anonymity, I don't know, but it has to uh, grow up a bit, actually, collectively. But it's really significant, and I think people that underestimate it and think that print comment is superior are, are wrong. Simon? I mean, I think, as far as the blog's concerned, we just don't know where we're going yet. I mean, I've been in America, and it's t so different, the political debate in America, because of the paucity of, of conventional newspapers and the, and the saturation effect of the blog, now, of, of the web now. Um, I, I mean, as far as newspapers are concerned here, I mean, plenty of people in this room, as Georgina Henry does the Guardian one, and we have this conversation all the time. What on earth do we do with this stuff? Um, I mean, I, I respond to emails, which on the whole are intelligent. Um, most of them come from abroad, so are you writing for an American audience in the Guardian or for a British audience? You really don't know yet. Um, m many of them are from women. I would, I would not have agreed with Julian on that at all. The blog is different. This is kind of hundreds of just kind of, I won't say the word diarrhea, but you think to yourself, what on earth, have I got to read this stuff? It's rotting my mind. Um, I've got other things to do. You plough on and you think this is just crap. Um, uh, and yet, you know, it's the public talking back to you. So you've got to respect it in some sense of the word respect. But I'm just, I just don't think we know what to do with it yet. We've unleashed a monster and we're, we're still not quite sure what, what, what it is. Uh, the other question was, um, I think, at the very beginning, uh, basically the old question, who on earth do you think you are? Um, and uh, I, I get very nervous if someone says, who do you represent? Or, I um, mean, you, know, you start saying, oh, well, I've got these readers here and these readers there. And I remember actually Little John was once asked, how, how did you get so angry every morning to write a column? And Richard actually said, he said, I don't know what the question means. If I didn't have a column, I'd pick up an AK-47 and go and mow people down in the street. <laughs> uh, and I have to admit, I sometimes feel that. Um, it is just something we do. Uh, and someone pays us to do it. Uh, and um, where you're coming from, uh, who you're representing, I think it'd be a terrible mistake to answer. Um, the only thing I do think, and I, I think I speak for most newspaper columnists here, faced with this great uncertain monster, the blog, is we don't just express an opinion. We try and do it in a certain way. Uh, we use grammar. Um, we try and use imagery. Uh, we try and use uh, examples. We try and do some research. Um, a column is actually a crafted piece of work, believe it or not. Um, and I don't know, I just take a certain amount of pride in trying to do it that way. Um, and that is not something that naturally fits in the blog. It is a different sort of journalism. And I just hope it lasts. Okay, now I promise I'm, I'm supposed to be finishing now. And I've seen, uh, I've seen a few uh, arms. So what I'm going to do is say uh, I will take some questions, but on the condition that they, their question or their comment lasts no more than 30 seconds. And I'll invite the, the panel to come back in and make one final point, which may be a response to the question. Or it may just be their final uh, point, okay? Uh, and I've seen the five people I'm going to take, so there's no point putting your hands up now. I'll start with John Campbell. Uh, my brief comment or observation or, or question is about the definition of politics. I had worked from the assumption that uh, the blogosphere would democratise not just the source of the comment, namely the people commenting, but also the subject matter. Now, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but actually, I think, I mean, I, I love devouring all the political blogs that exist now, and you're right in, in 
commenting that the vast majority of them are, are from the right. But they are all SW1. They're all Westminster. They're all the village. They're all who's up, who's down, who said what. What has happened to this idea of politics, we were told, was being conducted out with Westminster on, on the street? What's happened to the blog about immigration in Dover? What's happened to the blog about uh, Trident, uh, about Faslane? Where is the politics being conducted in the new technology that is not about the Westminster game? Hello, I'm Antonia Cox. I'm a leader writer at The Standard. There are female leader writers. Um, I'd just like to pick up Charles Clark on what he said earlier about The Standard's coverage. Are you suggesting that we shouldn't have run the Andrew Gilligan stories? Those were serious stuff. They were about misuse of public money. There are extensive police investigations, the, the district auditors probe. These are not stories that any newspaper worthy of the name could have suppressed. And I don't r see that there's any justification for calling our, disc our coverage disgraceful. And I'm just interested in what the rest of the commentary I'd have to say about that. I'll ask you a question to, uh, yeah. as you're standing, which is, could you tell us uh, overall in, say, the last three months of the campaign, how much money and how much time was spent on investigating Ken Livingston as against how much money and how much time was spent investigating Boris Johnson by the newspaper? You presumably know that fact. I'm afraid that fact is totally above my pay grade. But um, well, there the are people who know. I'm sure you'll tell us then, in due course, or someone will. Okay, right in the corner of the room. Thank you. Uh, Peter Bale from Microsoft. I work on MSN. Um, I did think for a moment there that I was in a room of 18th century Whigs complaining about pamphleteers. Um, I'd like to ask what you're doing about your own accuracy. Uh, I think one of the things that the blogosphere or the net has done is expose people like you much more to demands to be accurate. Um, and often many of us fail in that regard. I think particularly in medicine where we have uh, Ben Goldacre, Fortune in the Garden, Guardian, to call everybody to account. But what are you doing about fixing your own stories, either making them more accurate in the beginning or repairing the uh, mistakes that you've made or the misassumptions that you make uh, you know, publicly? And I think also to pick up Charles's point about whether we can expect a, a slightly fresher era in British publishing where papers are much more open about uh, uh, correcting their errors in perhaps the same way The Economist does. Okay, there's a gentleman at the back who's either half standing or extremely tall. Uh, I'm James Woodhausen, Professor James Woodhausen actually. I write for Spiked that uh, thought Gordon was bad news uh, when everybody thought it was, he was good news. I just want to say, if you watch Citizen Kane and you remember Orson Welles uh, buying up all those columnists, it's long been true since Hearst, in fact, that columnists and newspapers make the news and so on. What's new about today, or what compass for the commentariat? I think one thing that's new is the climate change herd instinct, and I wonder whether defenders of free speech such as Charles Clark and any other members of the panel can guarantee for us that, you know, on such an emotive issue where the survival of the planet and us all is at issue, that we do retain in the commentariat as elsewhere free speech. I think that's different from the late 19th century. Paul Charman, Head of Journalism at the London College of Communication. It's really just to, to remind you, uh, Charles, that how on we were uh, to have you come and talk about the press and uh, politics at the inaugural police lecture at the LSE, and uh, your remark earlier about how you, there's no debate within the universities. Perhaps your memory of that is tainted by the fact that the next day you had to resign as Home Secretary over the um, foreign national prisoners fiasco. Okay, uh, I'm now going to reverse the order and invite the economist to make a final comment or respond to any of those questions or points. Simon. Um, firstly, uh, P Peter's point about corrections. Um, I don't think any journalist, economist or not, likes making mistakes. It was a common thesis that we're all 
completely slap happy about this. Someone writes in and said, you've got this wrong. I mean, I don't know about my colleagues, but we don't like it. Um, and there's no doubt at all that one of the features of the web, in the widest sense, is it makes it more difficult to make mistakes with impunity. I mean, people do correct you very quickly. Uh, and I mean, the Guardian, the Times, they have correction columns. It's, it's, it, it is really different from the old days to that extent. Um, and and that, that's, that's really the point I want to make. The only other thing I'd say is I think the fact that we're having this conference, the fact that we're, we're discussing a sort of revolution that's now taking place in the way in which we conduct politics and political debate in Britain is a good thing. Uh, there is no doubt at all that more people's voice is getting out there and being heard. More people's views are being discussed. I absolutely agree that the political blogs are peculiarly Westminster-centric. Um, but that doesn't mean that if you go down to Cardiff or, or uh, Birmingham or Manchester, you haven't got blogs there and people contributing to blogs about City Hall. I mean, everything has changed. Uh, I'm not sure we've got the full measure of it, as I said before, but, but I just think it's an extremely good thing. Julian? Well, I think comment is genuinely free, and the commentator is unfettered by the demands, or as less fettered by the demands put upon them by the uh, news machine and I think that is a very good thing and we need frank and free and fearless commentators to say unpalatable truths and palatable truths alike and I think that the commentators rise is uh, going to continue I think it's going to continue into the blogosphere and I think that the more the voices are heard and read and indeed summarised and analysed the better Charles um, Firstly on blogs um I'm afraid I don't really agree with Julia, and I'm more sympathetic to what John Campfner was saying, and I certainly don't think the blogs are holding newspapers to account on accuracy. Um, it may be that it changes, and it may be that the blog will become a device for opening out the political space and debate that we were talking about earlier. But at the moment, I see a group of, a tiny group, actually, of self-obsessed individuals doing their own thing in a way which casts almost no light on uh, politics in any way whatsoever. Now, that, I'm sure will sound like an extremely jaundiced remark, uh, and I do agree with what Simon says, that in due course that may well change into a positive area, but I think we're a hell of a long way from that uh, at the moment. Um, I didn't say, and I don't think, Antonia, that uh, the Standard should not have run the pieces that it did about Ken Livingstone's administration. I'm not an admirer of Andrew Gilligan, as it happens. I am an admirer of Martin Bright, who associated with that and those things, and I've talked about it with Martin, and I think it was perfectly appropriate for the uh, standard to run, run those pieces. However, I also think, and the reason why I made the remark that I did, that the standard had a very explicit agenda to bring down Ken for a variety of reasons going for a long period of time, and they very consciously set out to do that. Uh, and that's what I think is... Um, uh, was what they did. Now, if you say to me that should that have meant that you should have somehow not have covered the way in which Ken ran his administration, absolutely not. I think you were right to cover it and you should have covered it. And there were issues that were wrong in what Ken was doing. And I, you need to know I'm not an admirer of Ken Livingston going back over a long period of time. However, uh, I still think the, the, the coverage was, uh, what, what word to use which isn't offensive, um, oh, go on. All those in favour of Charles using offensive <laughs> words. No, no, I never use offensive words. Was uh, prejudiced, should I say. I don't know if that's offensive or not. Um, as far as James's point is concerned, I'm, I, I think I made a remark in my initial uh, contribution about the danger of herd instincts, and climate change is certainly one of those. I do think that people are right to warn about climate change. I do think there are many issues. I think Nigel Lawson, who's had plenty of space for his contest of the, herd of the um, climate change points, had plenty of space for doing that. And I think there should be very much more free speech in that sense. 
Uh, I remember the histories of the 1930s and how people uh, got into mass economic crisis because they wouldn't face up to the economic issues of the moment. That's why I said I think we need more iconoclasm than we actually have in the commentariat. And I think we should celebrate people who stand out against uh, the, the, the general instinct. Um, but I don't think that's a particular point about climate change. I think it's a point about absolutely everything. And I think the herd instinct is a very, very dangerous uh, aspect. Paul, I do remember that uh, meeting uh, that we had at LSE, and I, of course, remember obsessively every aspect of my personal history and life in every detail. Uh, however, I uh, also think that though events take place in universities, including LSE, which are worthwhile, I think it is a serious and interesting point that major research which is being done by British universities and by brilliant people in universities up and down the country is very little related to uh, the conduct and development of politics and policy in a wide variety of different ways. And as I say, I think the reason, uh, I think to justify my case, I think the existence of think tanks is precisely um, a response to the fact that universities have not been able to do that. Universities, by and large, LSE is probably the biggest exception, uh, have not been able to engage people from all kinds of walks of life in what they do. They're often very academically isolated. They're often um, very unengaged in what takes place, and, I th and often under the guise of protecting academic freedom. And uh, I actually think that's wrong. I think you need much more robust, robust discussion, debate, argument, including from universities. Thank you. Suzanne? Um, well, I take the point about getting it wrong, but, I mean, we also do get it right sometimes, and... Um, but we're not paid to be psychics. I mean, I don't know exactly know what you mean by getting it wrong, getting it right. I mean, if you mean facts, do we get our facts wrong, then we're, we should be corrected. Did we predict certain things absolutely accurately? No. I mean, some, some people do, some people don't. No one does it all the time. I mean, I think that's a kind of ridiculous demand. The blogs don't get it right any more than anybody else. And I'm not against the blogs. I just want the blogs to be better. And I'm going to say a really creepy thing. I mean, what the power of comment shows is, in fact, the power of good editors. And, you know, editors shape comment, and editors say to you, yes, you may feel you have 3,000 words in you, Suzanne, but you can really only do 600 on this. And that's what blogs can't do. And, uh, you know, there is no kind of self-editing process that seems to go on in blogs. And I, I, I agree with uh, John about the kind of um, Westminster nature of some of the blogs, but you can look elsewhere. But I spent the election night reading Guido Fawkes, which was men... You have, when you say blogs, it always sounds kind of very glamorous and this, collection, this collective mind of people really intellectually doing stuff. It is a bloke in front of a computer in his bedroom wanking over Emily Maitlis. That is what Guido Fawkes was on election night. And there was nothing in that. There was nothing, no insight for anybody. Well, for some people, but not for me. Daniel. I'm astonished at the way we're talking about blogs because it just reflects no understanding of how vast the number of blogs are. And basically, if you're not getting very much out of them, you're just reading the wrong ones. There is a vast amount of fantastic information in blogs and fantastic analysis. If you didn't like what Guido was doing, I mean, I didn't read Guido on election night, but there were lots of blogs on election night. Tim did one and lots of people did one which were fantastic and also on election day there was a huge amount more that you could find out about, for example, the election result which you couldn't learn on the BBC because the BBC is too cautious to do it, but it gave you an idea of what was going to happen in a way that you couldn't... On the BBC so there's facts, there's analysis, there's great comments, there are fantastic links all around the world and the the, the you know the, the the blogs are a magnificent sense of uh, a magnificent source of intellectual sustainment. I cannot believe the comments that are being made about blogs. Um, the, the the second thing I would say is um, that. Uh, 
as far as the Evening Standard is concerned, why didn't they investigate Boris? First of all, obviously, Ken Livingston was the mayor, but secondly, maybe they didn't want to. Uh, they don't have a responsibility to anybody except uh, the people that they're selling the newspapers to. The Guardian didn't like uh, 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 Boris, and I, they had that fantastic statement, we know what Boris is like, but I never found out who we was and whether or not I was included in that we or not. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the... the the Guardian was entirely entitled to write what it wrote. If the, uh, the, the, the Evening Stand ran ultimately, I think, successful part of a campaign to change the Mayor of London, which is a London newspaper, was an inspired piece of journalism. It was an inspired piece of making their paper relevant and punchy, but it may also mean that some people in this room never want to read it again, which was the decision that the editor uh, had to make. But I think she probably made quite a good one in deciding that with a lot of free newspapers she has to give the standard a, a cutting edge. Uh, she doesn't have a responsibility to be unbiased. Who on earth would want to read that? OK, Dave, well, thank you very much for that. Um, now, uh, thank you all for joining us tonight. Uh, the um, RSA hosts the country's largest free public lecture series, so if you don't come to this building regularly, do please come back for future lectures. Our next few weeks include uh, Hans Blick, Stephen Pinker, and a various other um, uh, uh, important figures from around the world. Um, if you're interested in becoming a fellow of the RSA, uh, then you can ask about it at the reception, but this is not really an advertisement for the RSA, it's really an event of editorial intelligence. So can I ask you to thank uh, what has been an absolutely splendid panel this evening.